From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Superannuation in Australia is both incredibly complex and highly sensitive politically. Any proposed changes are hotly contested. Treasurer Jim Chalmers has announced there will be a tax hike on the super balances above $3 million. From a concessional rate of 15% to a concessional rate of 30%. The rise will initially affect only about 0.5% of account holders, rising to an estimated 1 in 10 in 30 years' time. This increase won't take effect until after the next election, but the Coalition is accusing Anthony Albanese of breaking a pre-election promise because he said he had no intention of altering superannuation arrangements. Mike Callaghan, a former Treasury official, chaired the Retirement Income Review, which reported to the Morrison government in 2020. That review did not make formal recommendations, but it did execute a deep dive into the pension and superannuation arrangements for older Australians. Mike Callaghan joins us today to talk about superannuation and retirement income more generally. Mike Callaghan, let's start with your reaction to this government decision. Is it just a tweak, as the government says, and if so, should the government have gone further? It's an important step, and I think one of the most encouraging things is the fact that this issue regarding equity and sustainability of superannuation and a measure has taken place, has taken place now, because it's a very controversial topic and I think there would have been a lot of expectations, particularly what the Prime Minister said before the election, that there would be nothing taking place in this term of government. So the fact that we have seen movement is very encouraging. It's an important step, but there's a lot more that needs to be done in terms of improving the equity and sustainability of the retirement income system, superannuation in particular. But this is perhaps, is it the first step? The unfortunate thing is, given the controversy around it, it might curb enthusiasm and the uh, approach towards some more significant changes for some time. That could be the downside of this step. Before we move on to some of these details, can you just uh, talk to the question of how superannuation fits into the broader retirement income system? Yes, there is a tendency, I think, given that so much of the focus is on superannuation. We've seen it over the last few years and what the superannuation guarantee should be, what should be the size of the compulsory component of superannuation, that it seems to take centre stage. But in reality, superannuation is just one component of the retirement income system, one component of all the things that will influence a person's retirement outcomes. Currently, around 70% of people aged 65 receive the age pension and 60% of those receive the maximum rate. Most retirees now, the most important part of their retirement income is the age pension. This will change as the superannuation system continues to mature and more people go through their entire working life receiving the superannuation guarantee and the superannuation balances will increase. The projections still show that by 2060, 60% of people are likely to be on the age pension. 
In many respects, the age pension could be seen as the backbone of the retirement income system. It's the most important part of the retirement income for many individuals, and it's also the safety net. But there's many other parts of the retirement income system than just superannuation and the age pension. There's all the pensioner concessions that people over 65 and on pensions can receive, the health, the travel, the discounts on their rates, and those pensioner concessions they are equal to about the cost of the age pension and they make up a very important component of the outcomes of uh, retirees. There's also questions of health expenditure. We're not like America where as people age, so much of their expenditure goes on healthcare. Most in Australia of the healthcare expenditure that increases as you age is covered by Medicare. So the healthcare system is an important part of what's going to be the outcome for people in retirement, as is aged care. The aged care system becomes increasingly important the older you become and the fact that there's a very large amount of government support for the aged care system and its sustainability, its suitability, its coverage, etc., becomes very important for determining retirement outcomes. Then there's housing. A person's housing status is an important component of what their life is like going to be in retirement. If you own your own house, you don't have to pay rent and you have a substantial asset, usually the largest asset that many people have, that you can draw on to support your retirement. So there's many different aspects of a retirement income system. It's not just superannuation. And when someone retires, they have to confront all of these. They have to work out how they all integrate together and sort their way through this system. And I think that policy should be approaching it the way retirees have to approach of how do they deal with all these various components not just looking at aspects of the retirement income system as silos and in isolation. And of course, for governments, many of these components are increasing in in cost a great deal as the population ages. That's absolutely right. One of the aspects that we talk about is the importance of sustainability of the retirement income system, but it's all those other aspects It's the sustainability of superannuation tax concessions, sustainability of the cost of the age pension, and also the sustainability of the healthcare system, sustainability of the age care system. You have to look at the sustainability of all these different components because they are all interrelated. Now, your report said, and I quote, the Australian retirement income system is effective sound and its costs are broadly sustainable. Yet we are told that the costs of superannuation, the tax breaks, are in fact incredibly expensive in the long term. And you were saying more needs to be done to rationalise these tax breaks. Can you just explain the gap here? There's two aspects of that in terms of, yes, when we look at the overall system, we can say it's broadly sustainable. Uh, The pension, all the projections are that as the cost of the pension as a proportion of GDP will come down slightly. It's now about 2.5% of GDP. It'll be coming down on the projection to about 2.4%. Of course, when we make all these projections and the sustainability, the most fundamental underlying assumption is that the economy will continue to grow. We're all putting it against the growth in the economy. So It all depends on the economy continuing to grow, and that's having the appropriate macroeconomic settings, having the productivity growth, et cetera, that we can continue to grow. So those projections on the pension say that, yes, it should be broadly stable on the current uh, proportion of GDP. For superannuation, the concessions, there's the 
Contribution tax concession. Now, the projections are that that will probably broadly be sustainable relative to the growth in GDP. Yes, it will be growing, but it is capped. The contribution, how much you can put into super, it's capped, and that is likely to ensure that it doesn't grow too much. The aspect of the concessions that is projected to grow faster than the growth in the economy is the concession on interest rate, the uh, interest rate concession on superannuation balances. And that's when those projections say that by 2050, the cost of the superannuation concessions will be growing faster than GDP, will overtake the cost of the aged care concession. And the component that will be continuing to grow is the superannuation tax concession. Now, that's not the way, if you're looking for a sustainable system, one that continues to grow. When you've got all these other aspects, as we mentioned previously, of the public sector, in the retirement income sector, health, aged care, etc., uh, NDIS, all those continuing to grow, the, it's contributing to overall concerns about sustainability. But it's also linked, there's questions that come back to equity of it all. The question that always has to be asked is that growing cost of those superannuation tax concessions, are they needed to achieve the objectives of superannuation? Is it the most cost-effective way to achieve those objectives of superannuation? I think in the report we presented that it raised questions that know the superannuation tax concessions, they're not the most cost-effective way to achieve the outcomes that you're seeking for the retirement income system. They're also not particularly effective and their cost is growing. So in terms of improving sustainability and also improving the equity in the system, there is scope for change. I think I'd also emphasise that when we look at sustainability of the system, it's not just the cost to the budget or the cost to the economy, it's also confidence in the system. And to the extent that a retirement income system is increasingly seen to be inequitable, as we've seen in other country, it comes under significant pressure to the point where its overall sustainability can start to crumble. That's what we've seen in Chile. That's some of the problems we've seen in France. So sustainability, you have to ensure that it is equitable. People will be continuing to support significant concessions provided it is equitable. And another aspect of sustainability, given all the different components of the retirement income I mentioned before, is they have to work together. There has to be cohesion to the way they work. If they start working in different directions, if you have too many clunky interactions, for example, aged care and aged pension, it's going to cause lots of concerns and public lack of support and lots of problems in the broader aspect of sustainability can come into question. And those are all factors that have to be taken into account. One thing that's been observed uh, recently is that superannuation has in fact become uh, a sort of inheritance vehicle for people to pass on assets to their family rather than using those assets for their own retirement. That truly is not its purpose. How much of a concern is this? It is, I think, a very significant concern, and I would highlight it as one of the major policy areas where uh, needs to be a focus of attention and action. It's fine if people want to leave an inheritance to their children, but what we're seeing now is that's not generally a conscious decision of people. We're seeing across the system now 
people not drawing them down to use them for the intended purpose, which was to support their standard of living in retirement. As I say, it's fine if people want to leave an inheritance as long as it's a conscious decision. But when you look at surveys of retirees and you see where do they rank the importance of inheritance, it's well down the list. What the problem is, not leaving the inheritance, but the problem is that people don't know what to do to make the best use of the assets they have in retirement. There's lots of reasons for this. A lot of it is ignorance. A lot of it is confusion. A lot of it is that they have a savings mentality has been drummed into them. Build up your nest egg. Don't spend your nest egg. But people retire, they receive a significant financial sum of money. It can be from the superannuation. It may not be big. The average is about 165000 now, but that might be more that they've seen at one time. They don't know what to do with it. They've been structured to say they have the confusion of what's going to happen, how long are they going to live, what could be their aged care, what could be their health care, where should they put it, what should they do with their house, how will they interact with their pension entitlements. There's a range of elements, a complex system that they need to navigate and they're not getting the advice. The biggest deficiency we've seen that's leading to this outcome, I think, is that people don't get advice. I think it's about only 10% of retirees actually get advice entering retirement. Now, there's a number of reasons for that. And that's, I think, this, as I say, should be one of the most important policy focus, which we're seeing now with the review of the quality advice. The report has just been completed with the introduction of a retirement income covenant obligation being put on superannuation. The whole intent of these is to try and improve the regulatory environment and also improve the cost of the regulatory environment for advice and also to reduce the cost of advice. But there's another important component that has to take place in this. And I think it's people, they need a positive push that they do need advice. When you see the surveys of why people don't get advice, they say it's too costly. And they say, but I don't have that big financial asset, so I'm not one that has that need for financial advice. There's the other one of lack of trust. Everything they've heard of financial advisors when it came out of the Royal Commission. But there's this important aspect of, I just don't think I need it, where they actually do need it. And I think we need to not only focus on questions of the cost of advice, we need some positive pushes to let people know that they do need some help in navigating all this to make the most of the assets they have in retirement, to have the standard of living they can have. And they can take a conscious decision as to how much they want to spend in their retirement, how much they want to continue to save, to leave as an inheritance, and not let it be just a a default outcome by not knowing what to do to make the most of their retirement years. Coming back to what the government's done, you've indicated that you think more should be done at at some stage. What two or three measures on superannuation would you like to see the uh, government or some government undertake? Um, The problem in superannuation is that it adds to inequities in retirement income by its very nature. The balance you have depends on how long you are in the workforce and how high your income is. The higher your income, the longer you work in the system, the bigger your superannuation, the bigger the balances you're going to have and the bigger the tax concessions you have. So we see the tax concessions in the system very much, the highest proportion of them going to 
higher income earners. As a result of they've got higher income, they deal with big balances with the concessions, much bigger concessions for them. The government support for the top 10 income, in the highest income, sorry, in the highest income categories, that is way above lifetime government support for their retirement is way above lifetime government support for the lower income and middle income. Now, if we're looking for government assistance, it really, I think one of the definitions of equity is it should be going to those who need it. Do the higher income need all the assistance and concessions they get to achieve the dignified retirement that is in the government's proposed definition of retirement? No, they don't. So is it cost effective? No, it's not. The idea of the tax concessions in superannuation is one of them is to try and encourage people to put money into retirement. It isn't. What we've seen is that really this, the concessions don't, it don't, it doesn't increase their savings. It certainly uh, influences where they put their savings. They'll try and put as much as they can into tax, very tax preferred superannuation. But it's from other aspects of wealth, other aspects of saving. So it's not effective in achieving the objective of helping people to save for their retirement. It really is just providing a very uh, effective tax minimisation strategy for them. So that's one of the top areas. We do need to do more on trying to reduce that we had the high income earners continuing to receive the highest amount of concessions and superannuation tax concessions. And that adds to the questions of sustainability in that, as we said, it's those superannuation tax concessions are the ones that are increasing so much. So any step that we can take through that system to try and target away from most of the tax concessions going to the high income, they should be priority areas. Part of the problem, of course, is making any change in superannuation because we don't start with a blank sheet of paper. There's always concerns about if you make changes that is going along, as we've seen with the government's most recent measures, concerns that, oh, here are more changes, are going to lose confidence in superannuation. So it's really trying to target what might be uh, the most achievable means achievable win inverted commas because any change in superannuation is a a very courageous political decision for any government those that you could get the biggest impact from them and i think one of the 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 steps have been taken to cap the concessions the interest rate concessions of those with a lot of money in superannuation i think that's an important measure i think a more significant measure that can help to reduce some of the inequity, and certainly it's more, far more significant improving sustainability, would be to, I think, for sustainability and also to improve the simplification of, of the system would be if all superannuation interest, except for the higher incomes, was taxed at 15%, rather than having those in the drawdown phase not being taxed at all. It's, I think it would be just to have the flat rate of tax across right up to that 3 million cap at 15% in both accumulation and drawdown phase. Now, people have to run two accounts if they have some in the drawdown phase, some in the accumulation phase. If they would just have to have one account, one set of fees, it would raise significant amount of money. It would be a very relatively small impost on people because while it's 15% with the offsets, imputation, 
uh, offsets, etc., the actual tax rate is less than that. It's paid by the superannuation funds. People wouldn't see it. It would be taking effect on the future. It wouldn't be retrospective. So I think that would be a significant step. Very in itself would be very controversial, but I think that's one that I put would be perhaps one of the ones to focus on in, in particular. Well, certainly everything with superannuation seems controversial. Another question that's very controversial is what it should be able to be used for apart from retirement. And the government's proposing to legislate uh, an objective for superannuation. That objective, as uh, proposed at this point, would in fact rule out uh, the coalition policy, which is to allow people to dip into super for a first home. Do you think that uh, first home buyers should be able to use some of their super, given the point you were making about the importance of having a house in retirement? Yeah, having a house in retirement is very important for a person's retirement outcomes. But the problem with all of this is that while it's important, Solving the problem of helping first-home owners get into housing is not going to be solved by tweaks of the superannuation system. The problem confronting home ownership in this country and people entering the housing market is a complex one, which many aspects of it, and it's perhaps more on the supply side, increasing the number of houses, but it's also dealing with some of the other tax measures in the system that are distorting housing market. It's dealing with the release of land, etc. All of that are going to be the far more important components of trying to help people enter into the housing market. If we just focus on allowing first-home owners to access super to get a home in isolation and almost as we're doing something and we're not going to deal with more the fundamental problems of superannuation, it's not going to achieve its objective at all. As many people say, it's likely to just add extra pressure to house prices. And there is a cost, a very significant cost to the individual uh, of letting them access the superannuation. As we've seen, it was highlighted in the early release during the pandemic. People, particularly young people, don't have significant balances. They take them out if it doesn't help them really to get into the housing market. They do lose all the benefit of compounding, of having that money in their superannuation over their lifetime. The other concern I have with this, apart from it seemed to be a silver bullet for housing where it's not and may add to the problems, is that it may not be in the best interest of everyone, every young person, to say, oh, I can access my super to get into housing. For many, it might be far better to keep their money in there and to look for other measured ways to improve their savings, to obtain the deposit. And it will vary from individuals. The concern is that we know that the reason we have compulsory superannuation is that they don't save for the long term. If they have the opportunity to draw out savings now rather than the long time, they'll do it, as we saw with the early release. If you open it up without significant caveats around who can actually draw down to get into the housing market, you could see a lot of people just taking the money out, not doing the saving they could do otherwise. And in the end, there'll be a significant adverse impact on retirement outcomes. So it seemed to be a very simple 
proposition to say, people, if you own your own house in retirement, yes, let them get into their super to achieve it. It's not a simple proposition. It's not like it may well not achieve what you're trying to do. It may make the matter problem worse if you don't do the broader aspects of what's required to deal with the housing situation. And also, it may vary from individuals as what's in their best interests, their best financial interests. And this is the problem of, I think, of, of that just simple proposal. It's not so simple. Let's turn to the superannuation guarantee. At present, it's at 10.5%. It's headed to 12% in 2025. Is 12% appropriate? Is it too much? Is it too little? I think 12% is more than enough. One of the best things out is that right now we're not just totally focused on what the superannuation guarantee should be at the expense of all the other policy priorities in the retirement income system. I think a higher policy priorities, such as letting people get affordable and accessible advice, that we're not just focused on the size of the superannuation guarantee. Uh, the Treasurer talks about ending the superannuation wars. I hope one war that we could end, or if not end, have a very long armistice, is what should be the level of the superannuation. It's set now by 2025 to go to 12%. That's not being debated now. Let's lock it in, preferably, and let's leave it there. And I see some of the significant proponents of the SG have even agreed that 12% uh, is probably more than enough. As I say, even at 9.5%, if people made effective use of all the assets they have in the retirement, they could achieve a significant retirement outcome higher than if it goes to 12% and they still don't use effectively their assets they have in retirement. So let's not just focus on what should be the size of the balance. Let's now focus on how do we help people make the most use of the money they have in their retirement to achieve the types of outcomes that are achievable for them in retirement. Just finally, the Treasurer would like to see superannuation funds put into uh, projects in the, the national interests, areas of national interests, such as affordable housing, the energy transition and the like. Do you think that this is a sound policy, even though it may be that the returns for fund members might be lower from some of those investments than from other investments? The strength of our superannuation system is that savings are individuals' money and it is managed by private fund managers who have the obligation to look after their money in the best interests of the members. And I think that's extremely important. Now, my interpretation of what the Treasurer says is that he was not proposing to direct funds that they have to invest in particular areas. And there's no place in the system for directing the government, directing funds to invest in particular areas. I interpreted what the Treasurer is saying was that having a conversation with the private fund managers, not only superannuation, but more generally private fund managers, to see what are there impediments that are preventing superannuation funds and other fund managers to invest in particular areas, be they in social housing, be they in energy transition, etc., or see what incentives can take place to allow these funds to invest in these areas and still be consistent with doing the best for members, achieving the best returns for members. And the two can be compatible. When I was in the uh, working in the Aged Care Financing Authority, 
I asked one of the uh, major superannuation chief financial officers why they weren't investing in aged care, given that we have an ageing population and enormous capital requirements to meet this. And the reply was that, well, there's many other areas that are a lot easier to invest in and make a, a return. And also, this is an area where there's a lot of government, aged care was an area, a lot of government involvement, and it's not particularly secure, that investment environment. It can change frequently. Now, I think these are important things to remember, that one of the impediments for investing in these areas, both in social housing and also in energy transition, is the investment environment. And to the extent that the funds can be emphasising what is the nature of these long-term investments and the nature of the environment they require, the certainty they have, they need on these areas, can be very significant to helping improve them to invest in these areas without direction, but opening it up more. And then in other areas, they may well need to be some incentives to help people. Sharing it can be to help ensure that uh, there are the returns that the superannuation funds require for their members, but can be compatible with the governments to target particularly subsidies or incentives in particular areas. But one example, I think, of where we can see that we can focus on perhaps an impediment that can be helping the general housing question is to ask the question, now, why don't we have institutions building for rent? Most we have, a, we say we've got a rental crisis out there. It's one of the most important things out there. Most of our rental stock out there is mum and dad investors. Another house they have or an apartment or something they rent out and and it's not a really secure rental stock that can vary for a whole range of reasons. We don't have major funds investing in build to rent for a number of reasons, I think, and I think a lot of them can be on the tax side. A lot of them can be on the land tax that's imposed by the states. There's lots of impediments that reduce the rate of return of building for rent as an investment. To the extent that you can have these conversations that can identify where there are significant impediments. There can be some significant improvements in investing in these areas that will have significant social outcomes and still be compatible with achieving a high or the highest rate of return relative to risk for the members of the funds. Mike Callaghan, thank you very much for stepping us through this very complicated and controversial area. It sounds as though we need a Minister for Retirement Incomes, uh, specially dedicated to the task. That's all for our Conversation Politics podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.